Father, we come to you right now and uh, we, we praise you for your great grace and love that you've shown us. Lord, we don't deserve any good thing. We actually deserve separation from you, death, and eternal condemnation because of our sins against you rejecting you as the only God and source of joy in life. And, and yet, Lord, in your great grace, you sent your Son, your great love you gave him to be our Savior. In unbelievable mercy, you looked on him as the one bearing our sins, and you pardoned us. Lord Jesus, you are the great, unchangeable I am, and you intercede for us. And because of your perfect life, we know that your sacrificial death was completely sufficient to cover all of our sins once and for all. And so we know that no condemnation can ever be brought against us when we are in you. We praise you for the confidence that we can have, not because of ourselves, but because of your work, because of who you are, truly the King of glory and of grace. We praise you this morning. And Father, as we open your word, we want to ask you to do what we need you to do in our hearts. Or we struggle with sin, we battle with sorrow, we lack wisdom, we grow cold, and Lord, there is no way forward for us except through your word. There, there is no way that we can see these things change except through your word. We have no other recourse this morning but to open your word. And yet at the same time, we believe that your word is completely sufficient for life and godliness, that your word is completely sufficient for every challenge we will face in this life. And Lord, we believe that when your word goes forth, it accomplishes your purpose every single time. And so we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose in your people during this hour. Lord, be gracious to us. Lord, show us your love and your power through your word this morning, all for your glory, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A promise is only as good as the one who makes that promise is faithful. A promise is only as good as, as the promise maker is faithful. You know, we, we know this intuitively from the time that we are children because, you know, just imagine with me that uh, there's a kid who, who has a secret and he tells his friend, I have a secret. He's kind of holding it over him and his friend says, please tell me, please, 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 I, I can't tell you because I, I'm not allowed to share with anyone. And, and, and his friend says, I promise I will not tell anybody. But that's not enough for kids. You can't just say, I promise I won't tell anybody. He comes back and he says, no, Pinky promised me, right? Pinky promised me. And in asking for that Pinky promise, he's asking for a greater assurance that his friend will be faithful to his word. 
Because a promise is only as good as the one who makes it is faithful. Now, just a promise, that's not enough assurance for a kid. But a pinky promise, now that you can trust. We don't really ever outgrow this when, when, as we grow into adulthood. This, we realize that there's such a thing as credit. And, and that if you ever want to buy a house, you need to have good credit. Why? Because the banks who would loan you the money to buy that house want to know that you will be faithful to pay that money back. And so they want to see patterns of faithfulness in your life. They don't want to just take your word for it. They want to see that you're someone who will be faithful to your word. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it is faithful. Well, Jesus made incredible promises to us in his earthly ministry. I mean, when you think about the claims of Christ, they're they're absolutely staggering. The promises of Christ are absolutely staggering. And they also come with extremely costly conditions. So, just, just think about what Jesus says. He says that all who come to him can have eternal life. Eternal life. Think about that phrase we, we throw it around so often. What are we talking about? We're talking about when you die, that you rise again and live forever. We're talking about life that never ends. We're talking about perfect life, indestructible life, immortal life in the kingdom of God forever. This is what Jesus offers to all who come to him. He promises eternal life to all who come to him. It's a staggering promise. And yet he also makes this condition. He says, if, if, if you want this promise, if you want eternal life, what must you do? You must deny yourself. You must lose your life. You must take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a costly condition. And when you hear the promise of eternal life, and all that that really means, and then you also hear that if you want that promise, you need to lose your life now and have a life of denial and cross-bearing and suffering now. One question should be in your mind at that point as a hearer. Is this Jesus someone who will be faithful to his promise? Will he be faithful to that promise? Because if I'm not sure if he'll faithfully fulfill that promise, then I am not going to lose my life. If I can't know that eternal life will meet me on the other side, then I'm not going to risk losing my life. Kind of like you get a call and they say, you've won a million dollars. And then they ask for all your personal information your bank account, social security number, and, and, and you realize I'm not going to give them that information no matter how good the promise is because I don't trust them. Why, why, why would we ever trust someone with our lives no matter how good the promise is unless we believe that they can make good on that promise? Really, this might be the most important question for someone to ask when they're reading their Bible. I mean, in the Bible, God makes these staggering claims, these unbelievable promises, things that we could never imagine, things that are too good to be true. And yet they all come only to those who, who give their life away, all that they are and all that they have to Him. And so whenever you're reading your Bible, anyone, the question is, is this God who makes these promises someone I can trust? Is this God someone who will keep his word? Will he be faithful to these promises? If he will be, then our path forward is as clear as day. Do exactly what he says. But if, if you are not sure, then how could you? Well, God does not want us to wonder whether he's going to be faithful to his promises or not. Over and over in scripture, he constantly tells us of his faithfulness. And not only that, over and over in Scripture, he's constantly demonstrating his faithfulness to us. He doesn't just say, I'm faithful, you can trust me. But he shows us 
his faithfulness. He gives us tangible pictures of his faithfulness. And one place we see that on display most clearly is in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Joshua 21, 43 through 45 is our text this morning. You can open your Bibles there and we will read these verses. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. According to one commentator, these verses are the theological heart of the book of Joshua. These verses show us what the book of Joshua is really all about. And this passage, though it's not technically at the very end of the book of Joshua, it really does function as a conclusion to everything we've seen in the book so far from Joshua chapter 1 until now. So let's dive into this text and just see what it says. First in verse 43, verse 43, you'll see it summarizes for us what we saw last week as we looked at Israel receiving their inheritance in chapters 13 through 20. Let's look at this verse again. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Again, that's, that's a summary statement of what we saw last week in chapters 13 through 21 that Israel received the inheritance of the land. Now, now notice the author reminds us that God had promised this land to Israel's fathers. He says that he, the, the land that he swore to give to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And, and we, we know, and we go back to the book of Genesis where we see these promises at first. God, God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12:1, and he calls him to go to the land that he will show him. And, and, he, and he promises him a special land, a special place where his people would become a great nation that brings blessing to all the earth. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. But, but realize this was over 400 years before what we're reading here. Like centuries have gone by since that promise was made. He promised them the land of Canaan, but, but over 400 years, that Abraham and his sons and, and descendants were sojourners in that land. And, and then they went from sojourning in the land to being enslaved in another land. And then from being enslaved in that land to, to, to then sojourning again in the wilderness. For over 400 years of waiting for this promise to come to fulfillment, but here in Joshua, God fulfilled his promise he gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. The text tells us that they took possession of it and settled there. We saw this last week. They received their inheritance. So just imagine that what was once this, this unseen reality that they had to put their faith in and walk by faith that one day this would become true. Now, now it had become their actual experience. What they once believed by faith, now they experienced for themselves. Their feet, again, were on solid ground in the land because God had fulfilled the promise. God was faithful to his promise to give Israel the land. That, that's the summary of chapters 13 through 20. God fulfilled his promise to give Israel the land. 
Now let's look at verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. So if 43 captures the essence of chapters 13 through 20, then verse 44 captures the essence of chapters 1 through 12. Where we saw the conquest of the land. We saw Israel in battle against their enemies, seeking to take the land. And this verse tells us, again, that the Lord fulfilled this promise. Again, the author reminds us of the original promise. He says that he gave them rest as he had sworn to their fathers. So again, he reminds us when the promise was made. Again, back in Genesis, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, God made this promise of rest. I think we see this promise First given right there in Genesis 12, when he first called Abraham, he said, right after promising him land, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now now that promise is really a promise of rest from all the attacks of the enemy. Him who dishonors you I will curse. God himself says, I will curse all those who oppose you, Abraham. I will curse all those who oppose your people. But again, think about the experience of Israel between that moment and this moment 400 years later. Did they have rest from their enemies during that time? Were all those who opposed them immediately cursed? No, they they were enslaved by the Egyptians. What about the promise? What about those who dishonor you? I will curse. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. And then, and then he, he redeemed them out of Egypt. But then in, in going to the land, they're constantly facing enemies. They're constantly at war. Even in the land itself, constantly at war. They, they are constantly facing these battles. There's, there's no rest to be found until now. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. They, they, they finally, the people of God finally experienced the promised rest. Again, what was once something that they had to believe by faith had now become a reality that they were experiencing for themselves. Rest on every side. No more enemies attacking them. God had cursed all those who opposed them. God was faithful to his promise to give Israel rest. And then verse 45 is really the author's conclusion. If If God gave Israel the land he promised in verse 43, and and, and if he gave Israel the rest he promised in verse 44, then here's the conclusion. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is what the book of Joshua is really all about. It's what it teaches us. The people of Israel received the promises of God because God was faithful to fulfill them. Not one promise failed. Not one good promise failed, but all came to pass. This is the message of Joshua. The people of God received the promises of God because God is faithful to his promises and his people. That's that's the message of Joshua. The people of God receive the promises of God because God is faithful to his promises and to his people. That's what this text tells us. 
But I want to press in a little further this morning and, and ask why does the author of Joshua want his readers to see this? So, so that, that's his point, right? That, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Now, why does he want his readers to see this? Why does God want us to see this truth today? Why does he want us to see this demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promises? And the key, I think, for us comes much later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. The New Testament does not reference Joshua very often, but the book of Hebrews does reference him, and it brings us much insight into how we should read this book. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on Psalm 95, which itself is a reflection on the wilderness period, and, and God swearing that they would not enter his rest because of disobedience, and and really holding out a another day of rest for the people of God. So, so Psalm 95 comes after the events of Joshua. It's reflecting back on those events. And, and now the author of Hebrews is reflecting back on Psalm 95 as it reflects back on those events in Joshua. So we have a strain of, of meditations going on here. And here's the conclusion that the author of Hebrews has. Verse 8 and following, chapter Hebrews 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So, so just stop there. Realize what he's saying is, is, is we see in Joshua that, that through Joshua, God gave Israel rest. But, but what the author of Hebrews is saying as he looks back at Psalm 95, is he's recognizing that wasn't the rest that wasn't the final rest. Yes, God fulfilled his promise of rest to his people in that time, but that, that rest was really just a shadow of a greater rest. So verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the author of Hebrews is saying that God promises an even greater rest than what he had provided to Israel through Joshua. He tells the church that the rest we see in the book of Joshua was a picture of an even greater rest that God provides through Jesus Christ. And the call of these verses in Hebrews 4 is that we today ought to strive to enter this greater rest. We, we ought to give ourselves fully to living by faith in the promises of God, even if it means loss, even if it means suffering, even if it means persecution, even if it means death itself. God is promising us final rest in a final promised land. That, 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 that's what we should be thinking when we read Joshua, not just that God did this for Israel, but that God's going to do this in, in an even greater way for us. There's an even greater rest for the people of God. And this is why Joshua 21 is so encouraging because it tells us this, that just as God was faithful to fulfill that promise to the people of Israel through Joshua, so also God will be faithful to fulfill this greater promise to us through an even greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. We, we can read Joshua 21. We can, we can see that God did not let any of the good promises fail, all came to pass, and we can know that means that when He promises us a greater rest, when He promises us a greater final place to be, that, that we can know He will not let any of those promises fail either. 
all will come to pass. So we look back at this past demonstration of his faithfulness in the shadow of what happened in Joshua, and, and it gives us confidence to look forward to the substance of the new heaven and the new earth and the final rest we will have there, and know God will do it. He did do it to them, and he will do it for us. He will be faithful to fulfill every promise he has made to us. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it is faithful. And Joshua 21 demonstrates to us that God is faithful. He is. So I want to apply this this morning for us in just a few applications. One, praise God for the glory of his faithfulness. Praise God for the glory of his faithfulness. When we think about the faithfulness of God, We should not just think of his actions of faithfulness, but we should be understanding, stepping back and realizing that God himself is inherently a faithful God. When God revealed his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, what did he say? He declared his name. And part of what he said is that he is the Lord, the Lord abounding in faithfulness. This is who he is. This is his glory. He's a God who abounds in faithfulness. Praise God for the glory of his faithfulness. This is who he is. He's a faithful God. This this means that he never changes. We're just saying about the great unchangeable I am. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. This means that he never fails. He will never fail to do what he has said he will do. This means that he's true to his promises. It means that he's committed to his people. He's committed to his people. He is a faithful husband to his bride. He maintains his love when we fail to love him. He forgives our sins when we disobey him. It means that he's completely reliable. It means that he's completely trustworthy. Later, the author of Hebrews will will say that Jesus is an anchor for our souls. And he's an anchor for our souls because he is faithful, because he's reliable, because he's trustworthy. So praise God for the glory of his faithfulness. Behold the glory of this attribute of God and praise him for it this week. Look to him and and just worship him and praise his name and say, God, you are, there's there's no one faithful like you. Though, Though all in this life may fail and will fail. God, you will never fail us. You will not let any of your words fall. All will come to pass. You are a faithful God. Praise him for his faithfulness. Second, thank God for how he demonstrates his faithfulness. Thank God for how he demonstrates his faithfulness. So, So God doesn't just tell us he's faithful. He shows us that he's faithful. And there's a huge difference in those things. Anyone can say they're faithful but you're convinced when you see it demonstrated. And God does this for us. He does it in two ways. First, he demonstrates his faithfulness in the scriptures, just like we saw this morning in Joshua, just like like we've seen, that that his great faithfulness to his people who who were were away from the promised land, in slavery, with, with, with seemingly no hope, and how God rescued them. He brought them out. He helped them all along the way, and he brought them to this point. This is the faithfulness of God demonstrated for us in time, in history. We can look back and see, God, you did it. You were faithful to what you said. You, you made a promise, and you kept it. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that. Or, or think about the Lord's faithfulness to David. He, God, God made a covenant with David. He said, he said that one of his sons would always be on the throne. 
And then David almost immediately turns around and he commits adultery and he murders and he tries to cover it all up. Yet the Lord pursued David and the Lord forgave David and the Lord remained faithful to David and the Lord fulfilled his promise to David in Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, who reigns forever. This is the Lord's faithfulness to David. And when we see that story, we can say, God, this is, this is who you are. This is what you're like. You're a God who is faithful to your promises. You made a promise and you kept it. Thank you for showing us and reminding us and, and, and confirming in us that you really are a faithful God. Or think about Peter. After he denied Christ three times on the night of his crucifixion, the Lord came to him, the Lord forgave him, the Lord restored him, and the Lord used him to establish the early church. This is the faithfulness of God. Why do we have that story? It's to show us that God is faithful. He doesn't just say he's faithful. He shows it to us. He demonstrates it to us. All of these stories are demonstrations of the faithfulness of God When we read them, we can thank him for reminding us that he will fulfill his promises to us as well. But when it comes to demonstrations of God's faithfulness, we can point to more than stories in the Bible. We can look at our own lives and see time and time again how God has demonstrated his faithfulness to us. You know, it's Thanksgiving this week, and so it's a especially fitting time to do this. Take a moment to remember the ways this past year that God has been faithful to you. Think about how God has been faithful to forgive your sins this year. The promise he made and he has done it. Think about how God's been faithful to provide for your needs. Maybe there was a moment where where you had great need and didn't know how that need would be met and yet God provided that need for you. He was faithful. Think about how God has been faithful to sustain you through suffering. Maybe you looked ahead and and you were anxious and said, I don't know how I'm going to make it. But one day at a time, God provided grace to sustain you through suffering because he's faithful to you. Think about how God's been faithful to use you in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your failings, in spite of your sins, that God has used you in people's lives. God God has, by his spirit, used you to help others to know him. God has been faithful to that this year. Think about a time when you didn't know what to do. You lacked wisdom and you prayed to God and you asked for wisdom and God was faithful to provide you with wisdom. Think about how God has been faithful to work hard things in your life for good. Now, there are so many ways that we don't see that final result when we go through suffering. We don't, we don't know how it will all work for good in the end, but, but sometimes God gives us glimpses here and now of how he works hard things in our lives for good. And we see it and we we can say, God, that's your faithfulness to us. You've promised that you're working all things for good. And I see in this one instance that you, you really are working these things for good. Think about how God has been faithful to mature you in your faith. Think about where you were a year ago and where you are now and all the ways that God has lovingly shepherded your heart to make you more like Christ. Think about these things, church. And even as we prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving, again, thank, thank God for all the ways he's demonstrated his faithfulness to you personally, to your family, and, and even to us as a church family. God has been so faithful to us. God has been so faithful to help us, so faithful to encourage us, so faithful to keep us, so faithful to unify us. God has been faithful. Let's thank him for that. But finally, 
live by faith in the Lord's future faithfulness. So, so praising God that he is faithful and thanking God for, for past demonstrations of faithfulness should do something in us. And it is, what it should do is it should free us from fear and it should give us courage to walk by faith in his promises, knowing that he will be faithful again. I think this is the impetus of this text in Joshua. This, this is the goal of the book of Joshua, is not just to show that God was faithful, but to, but to encourage that he will be faithful. And so be strong and courageous and don't be afraid because he will be faithful to all his promises as you continue to walk by faith in them. If God is faithful in himself and if God has shown us time and time again that he is faithful in action to us, then we can be sure of his future faithfulness and we can follow him down any path in complete trust. And so live by faith in the Lord's future faithfulness. I want to do something a little, a little different at this point in the sermon, I guess just as far as maybe where it falls, because normally you make your applications and then you just conclude the sermon. But I, I want to take this and, and kind of run a different direction with it and I think see something even deeper in the book of Joshua that, that comes through as we, as we look at it. And so at this point, I want to bring up something that you may already be thinking about as you, as you read these verses in Joshua today. And that's that there's this tension in the book of Joshua. Some of you may already be seeing it, because our text this morning tells us that God was faithful to give Israel complete rest in all the land that he swore. But just last week, we saw that there was actually still more enemies to be fought and more land to be conquered. It's a tension. That's, that's, that's what some would call a problem, right? What are we to do with this? Well, we want to face it head on. We don't want to just not think about it. That's, that's being irresponsible and afraid to just not think about it. And so let's look at it head on. You know, what do we do with this? The fact that this text says God was faithful to give all the land and they had complete rest, but then we, we know that there were still pockets of resistance and more land to be conquered. Some take this as evidence that the book of Joshua can't be trusted that it was just pieced together, that, that both of these things can't be true. They'll, they'll say that what we see in this text today is just an idealized picture of God's faithfulness, but it wasn't really a real picture of it. And, and, and the real situation was God had not done this yet. Of course, that undercuts everything about the book, doesn't it, to, to say that. There's a better way to understand this. So, so, so we begin with trust that the Bible is truly the inspired word of God, that, that it is completely true in all that it asserts. We start there, trusting that God did inspire this scripture. And then, and then from there, we, you know, we can safely assume that the author of Joshua was well aware of this contradiction. You know, we act like they didn't know what they were writing. The author wrote this, and, and, and I'm pretty sure he knew what he was writing. We can even assume that he intended it. He, he, he wanted us to see this tension because he wanted to teach us something. And, and, and this is what we should do in all of Scripture when we see an apparent contradiction. We should understand that we need to press in and get to the unity of truth that lies underneath that contradiction. Let's listen to what John Piper counsels. He says, Nothing sends us deeper into the counsels of God 
then seeing apparent theological discrepancies in the Bible and pondering them day and night until they grow into an emerging vision of unified truth. Let's hear that. So, so, so when you see a contradiction, nothing will take us deeper into the richness of what God's Word says than to, than to face that contradiction head on, to ponder it, to meditate on it, to, to think it through, to work it through until what emerges is a unified vision of His truth. It's worth it to look at these contradictions, these, these paradoxes, these tensions, and to say, God, what are you teaching us through this? It's worth it to look at Paul say that we are justified by faith alone, and then James say we are not justified by faith alone. And, 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 and to ask, God, what's the unified truth that both of these authors are trying to say? And, and that, that, that takes us deeper than we would otherwise go into who God is and what he says. That's what we want to do this morning with this text. God has been faithful to give all the land to his people and complete rest, and yet we know that there is still more land to be conquered, more enemies to be fought. Well, let's just begin by affirming those two things. We we need to affirm that both are true. We need to affirm that God was indeed faithful to his promises. We want to affirm that right now. Israel was truly resting in the promised land. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. They had received their inheritance. Not one promise failed. All came to pass. We can affirm this, and we must affirm it. And second, we need to affirm that Israel did not completely drive out their enemies, and that in order to truly experience all that their inheritance was, that they needed to drive them out. So we affirm both of these truths, even if we can't see how they fit together yet, we affirm them both. And then we need to seek how to understand how they fit together. And and for this, there's a few verses in chapter 18 that I think help us see the answer. If you turn back to chapter 18, this is right in the middle of allotting the land. Several of the tribes have received their inheritance, and several have not. And and Joshua is speaking to them. And and in chapter 18, verse 3, we read this. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long... Will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Do you see what he says there? He says, he has given it to you. He has given it to you. The Lord has given it to you. He's given you the land. He has done this. If you you look up at verse 1, the very end of verse 1 says, the land lay subdued before them. So, So the Lord's given it to you. And there's no one attacking you anymore. That, that, that means that you, you, you have your inheritance and you have rest. He's given it to you and no one's coming after you. The land is subdued before you. But then he says, how long till you take possession of it? How long will you keep putting it off to go in and take possession of what the Lord has already given to you? So in this one verse, there's this affirmation of God's faithfulness in one verse, affirming God's faithfulness to his promises and affirming and exhorting them to claim that promise by faith. In the same verse, here's what Calvin says. Had they exerted themselves to the full measure of their strength and failed of success, the dishonor would have fallen on God himself, who had promised that he would continue with them as their leader until he should give them the full and prepossession of the land. So, so, so if they had been fighting and failing, then we could say God was not faithful. That's not what's going on. Every time that they went ahead, God gave them victory. 
So he says, therefore, it was owing entirely to their own sluggishness that they did not make themselves masters of the land. Their own neglect of the divine command from a love of ease was the real obstacle. Their own neglect of the divine command from a love of ease was the real obstacle. So so I think this is what the tension teaches us. God is and will be absolutely faithful to fulfill every one of his promises, but we must live by faith to receive those promises. We must live by faith to receive those promises. God will be faithful. He always has been faithful. He is inherently a faithful God. He will be faithful to his promises, but we must continue. As Hebrews said, we must strive to enter that rest. Now Hebrews tells us to do that not from a position of works, but from a position of resting in Christ. From a position of already knowing that Jesus has done it all, a position of knowing that that our inheritance is secure in Him, we strive from a place of rest in Him to enter that final rest. We strive by faith. We strive trusting in Him. We, 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 We labor and when we go forward and we fight the battles of faith, we fight the good fight knowing that God will be faithful to fulfill His promises. And, and, and here's, here's, I think, where this, this all comes together in a beautiful way for us, church, is that when we are convinced that God will be faithful to His promises, that's what gives us the courage to strive. It's not wondering, will he be faithful, and we're striving, hoping. No, it's knowing he'll be faithful that gives us the courage to strive by faith because a promise is only as good as the one who makes it is faithful. If we know he'll be faithful, we will do everything he says to get that promise. And so this morning I want to call you first and foremost to behold our God who abounds in faithfulness. Just just see that in the Lord this morning. Remind yourself this morning that God is a faithful God. Know this morning that He has always been faithful and that He will always be faithful to you. And, And beholding that about God, then I also want to call you to live by faith in Him. Strive to enter the greater rest by continuing to follow Jesus by faith on that road of self-denial and cross-bearing and obedience to his commands, follow him by faith, knowing that he will be faithful to deliver his promise. The promise is trustworthy because the promise maker is faithful. We can rest in that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that reminds us of who you are, reminds us of what you've done, and calls us to remember that you will continue to be the faithful God you have always been. And Father, we look back in our lives and we see all the ways you've demonstrated your faithfulness to us, and we rejoice this morning in your faithfulness, and we ask that you would use this to fill us with revived faith to follow you until the day that you fulfill every one of your promises to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.